kids of Elm Street don't know it yet. But something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? We just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the jar and puking since he saw it. They're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. No! She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails... I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. No one will survive. Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror, Nightmare on Elm Street. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast that covers every single horror movie franchise, one movie in one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian. And, you know, this is the point where I normally ask Jerry how you're doing today, but I'm going to answer for you today. Jerry, you're doing fan-fucking-tastic because <laughs> we are kicking off my favorite franchise of everything we, we're covering. Um, I'm an Elm Street kid. Um, so, Jerry, how the hell are you? I'm really excited for, like, a just insane amount of reasons. First of all, I mean, I've just been so excited to cover this franchise. And also because... I'm hearing in Mike for the first time the excitement that that I knew everyone heard from me when we tackled like the Halloween films and the Friday Thirteenth films. Like Mike has been so ecstatic about doing the Nightmare on Elm Street films, so like it adds to like even my excitement for the, for doing this. And I felt like I put it off for as long as I could put it off for. Like you know, basically we didn't want to just do all the big. You know, the big three, like Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare on Elm Street, all in the same year. Um, you know, we definitely wanted to kind of spread things out a little bit. And I just finally got to the point where I'm like, fuck it. We got to, I'm at the stage where like, I want to do this, this uh-huh. series, and I want to do it now. But we are joined by a super special guest today. Uh, he was on with us way back, like a year ago now when we talked about Friday the 13th and New Blood. Um, we have the writer of the Never Sleep Again uh, and producer of the Never Sleep Again documentary. Also the writer of the amazing book, Never Sleep Again, which is, if you're a fan of the series, it's essential reading. It's like just so densely packed. And I think everybody involved with this movie in any way, shape or form, like right down to the person who delivered the art print for the first movie uh, was like quoted in this book. We have writer Tommy Hudson. 
Hey guys, thanks for having me. I'm I'm really I love hearing that I'm a super special guest. That makes me feel so great. <laughs> you should feel special because we usually when we introduce guests, we're like, ah, we got some jamoke from the street. A <laughs> guy we well, picked I, up at the uh, corner. Yeah. I also can't believe that it's been almost a year since we talked about the new blood. Wow. I know time goes by as we does. march towards death. Also, uh, really quickly, I mean, just extending on what Mike was saying, Tommy, like he either wrote or produced some, I think, of the best documentaries yes. around. I mean, not just Never Sleep Again, which I think is if you're an Elm Street fan and you've never seen Never Sleep Again, just pull your card, you know, just just sell your fan <laughs> card. But that uh, his name was Jason, uh, you know, Crystallic Memories. Uh, he wrote the great novel Jinxed, which I'm quite fond of, and also a film that, I, that doesn't get talked about very much. Uh, he wrote Animal, which is from Scream Factory, and it's it's a movie that really subverts uh, expectations that I really enjoyed. So yeah, we're so excited to have you back on. Oh, thank you so much. It was uh, so nice of you to say all those wonderful things. I'm I'm definitely proud of all the things I've worked on, and I've been lucky to you know, get to explore so many of the movies that I loved and watched growing up as a kid. And I've been blessed to have worked with fantastic, you know, people who helped me bring all these things to life. And so, yeah, I'm glad that they're getting out there and people are enjoying. So, Tommy, what, when did you first encounter the Elm Street movie and what was it about this movie that grabbed you? Oh my gosh. Um, I remember... I was not a gigantic horror movie watcher as a little kid. Um, I didn't go to the movies tons and tons. Like I just, I went when I could. And a lot of the times, you know, it was family movies and things like that. But I remember being at home watching television and a commercial for, at the time, I didn't know what it was, but it was a nightmare on Elm Street came on and it was terrifying. Like the ad terrified me because it was just the things that you saw and the and just the music and the voice and it just looked so scary to me and it was something that I just was so drawn to because previously I had two horror movie experiences and one of them was my grandmother literally making me watch Salem's Lot. Um, <laughs> I mean I was way too young to probably be watching Salem's Lot I was terrified and she loved horror and she wanted to watch it. I, I was just terrified. I mean, you know, the rapping on the window, I think that's still one of the scariest moments in any movie ever made. Um, but then my brother and his friends snuck me in with them to go see the howling, which absolutely terrified me. I probably watched 10% of that movie. My eyes were closed. My hands were over my ears. You know, years later, I realized the movie is just as funny as it is scary. Um, and I think that was sort of like the introduction to the power of, of what horror can do. And when I saw the commercial for A Nightmare on Elm Street, I remember thinking, I'm terrified, but I'm like desperate to see this movie and understand what all of this I'm seeing really means and, and, and this dreams and nightmares and, oh, that looks like the street I grew up on. I, you know, what is this whole thing? So I begged and begged and begged my father to take me to see the movie. He said, no, no, no. Are you kidding me? We would never go see that. <laughs> You're way too young. You know, everything parents would normally probably say back then. Ultimately, I wore him down, I think, just by sheer force of my will and him just sick of hearing about it. So he took me and I, 
I started to cry when I saw the movie. I was so scared of this film and I wanted to go home and my father basically said, yeah, we're staying. I have fun. I hope you're terrified. I love your dad. <laughs> you deserve all of the, I mean, he was just like, this was it. You know, I'm going to get him to realize that we, you know, don't need to be watching these things. And I came out of that movie terrified, but at the same time, so fascinated with everything that I felt and the horror I felt and, you know, just the emotions that were going through me. I immediately went to school and I told all the kids about it and the stretching of the arms and I wanted to go back and see it again. So it all came from the kind of desperation of trying to figure out what this movie was and who that villain was and who are these characters that he's attacking. And, and I came out of this theater terrified and so titillated and fascinated that it really honestly is the movie that started me on the trajectory that I think I ended up on. Um, Did it feel like after you saw this movie that the character of Freddy would become such this ubiquitous pulp culture icon? Like, could you, I mean, obviously you're young, you're not thinking in those terms when you're a kid, but like when you walked out of that movie, how likely were you to say like, I need this guy on my lunchbox when I go back to school? I will tell you this. I wanted my father who had a machine shop at his job. I wanted him to build me a glove, which probably (laughs) says terrible things about Mm -hmm. me as a child. So I believe that immediately without even understanding that marketing and product availability was a thing that, you know, most moviegoers were thinking about. I was clearly thinking about it. I definitely wanted a glove and I absolutely talked about that movie to so many friends in school. And I remember talking about the moment where his arms stretched and I remember talking about the sparks of the glove. So absolutely, I had no idea in my little kid brain that this was gonna become like a thing. Because I think also there weren't many sequels to movies at the time. I did not see Friday the 13th movies before A Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm -hmm. So I didn't understand horror movie sequels. I didn't understand anything other than there's a lot of, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula movies and Evan and Costello have met all the monsters, you know, that kind of thing. Franchise and like the, a horror film permeating into the public consciousness wasn't something on my radar. But looking back, it absolutely sort of was because I wanted to continue talking about that movie. I wanted other people to see it. I wanted things from that film. And I got to tell you, it impacted me in a way that at that time, I don't think many movies did. I mean, other than Star Wars, where I wanted to be Luke Skywalker, or Superman, where I wanted to fly, um, A Nightmare on Elm Street really just got me on so many different levels, you know, emotionally and subconsciously and intellectually. See, that's that's really interesting because, I mean, me personally, I, I knew of the series, but just the idea of the whole plot scared the hell out of me. I, like the first film in the series I saw, I went to see the Dream Master by myself in the theater as a kid. And by then, you know, I, I, the only reason I wanted to see that movie is because kids were bringing the posters to school, you know, and the teacher didn't care. You know, the, the kids were like, hey, look at this guy. And it seemed interesting. So I went to see it. It's so interesting that you got to experience that first film like that well, way. Yeah. And the interesting thing, too, is I don't really recall any of my friends having seen it. I think I was definitely 
more of a movie fan, even though I didn't go to that many movies. It's not like I went to the movies every other day. But I, I remember being more of the movie kid than most of my other friends. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't even tell you, thinking back, if any of my friends when I was a kid actually ended up seeing the movie. I do know that my friend who lived across the street saw Freddy's Revenge. I remember because he saw it and I saw it separately. And then we had a sleepover and I ended up calling my parents because I was so scared. They had to come get me, (laughs) which I think is hilarious. I don't remember having nightmares or problems from the original Elm Street, but Freddy's Revenge scared me for some weird reason that I can't pinpoint. Um, And it made me want to call my parents and say, come get me. I'm too afraid to sleep at John's house. (laughs) Growing up, I had horrific nightmares. And this would have been before I saw any of the Elm Street movies, but I had these really terrifying nightmares that like I would wake up screaming in my, you know, parents would burst in and be like, stop reading books about vampires and werewolves and this won't happen. Um, I remember like two in particular, there was one where I had a dream where my mom and I went into this like local convenience store and there was like, there was headline, this newspaper headline out about like a serial killer that had escaped. And I saw him in the store and nobody would believe me that it was him. And I remember like in the dream, my mom like forced me to go to the bathroom because it was going to be a long car ride. And I knew he was going to get me. And like the thing I remember before waking up is like that bathroom door opening and him putting his head in. Um, Like just awful dreams like that, like really, really terrifying ones. So this series, like when I was like old enough to become aware of it, I think the first one I saw was... Freddy's Revenge actually at a, a friend's house like the year it was on HBO and I remember like watching it from behind his sofa and being absolutely like <laughs> terrified but also completely enthralled by this villain because like at that point you know I knew I'd watched all the universal horror movies with my dad and I'd seen like King Kong and Godzilla but there was no monster that had as much personality as Freddy did and I remember like that year for Halloween it was sixth grade you know it's funny you said you wanted to build a glove like we were getting this edition put on our house so there were all these like raw materials outside in our yard and I snagged like four pieces of this like steel siding like really and just kind of fashioned them into finger knives and <laughs> took a leather glove and like cut the fingers off and taped the knives to my fingers oh my gosh. and I remember I used my allowance and it wasn't red and green because I couldn't find it but it was this red and black horizontal striped sweater and a fedora and I did like a skull cap and I tried doing Freddie makeup and it was really just like bad Halloween makeup mixed with like paste and just like stuck to my face with some food coloring. (laughs) Um, But I went as like Freddie for like sixth grade with a real and not one of the fake gloves. Like it was like, you could fuck yourself up with that thing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, it's so funny. I don't know that I ever dressed up as Freddie and you, it it seems like such a no brainer that I, I, I'd have to think back, but I'm almost positive I did not. But the other um, funny thing is, I don't recall ever having a nightmare about Freddy in my entire life, which I find completely interesting and fascinating. You know, the one character that actually I've had the most nightmares about, and I still don't understand why, is Michael Myers. I've actually Mm -hmm. had multiple dreams where he is after me. And I think that that's really interesting. And I don't know why, and I'm 
you know, that's a whole other topic. I will but. theorize. I'll theorize that because Myers mask is blank, this blank slate, you're able to project all of these fears onto it. Yeah, it's probably like, you know, my body and my brain working out the things that I'm upset and mm -hmm. afraid of and stressed out about. And that facelessness just is the personification of whatever is bothering me at that moment. But we'll, we'll definitely um, talk about yeah. that it's, in a bit. It's funny, Mike, when you talk about dressing up like Freddy for Halloween. I only did it one year and I grew up in a very poor family. You know, we couldn't afford even like the, the cheapest of things for like Halloween costumes. And I remember I wanted to be Freddy, so I just put a whole bunch of tapioca pudding over my face. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, oh my it all God. fell out. It fell off my face by like half a block in Trick or Treat. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, man. I haven't thought about that since I was a kid. That's funny. Oh, let's bring up some bad childhood <laughs> memories. Right? Um, so I guess to start discussing the movie a little bit, I, I you know, the two persons that come to mind when it comes to like creating this movie, obviously Wes Craven, um, master of horror, despite what I heard on a different podcast I was listening to just before we started recording, but that's not <laughs> here nor there. Um, and also Bob Shea, founder of New Line Cinema. I think mm -hmm. without these two gentlemen, this movie doesn't get made. Um, so Craven's pre- Elm Street career, really pre-movie career, is, is really fascinating. He was a college professor. He had this very religious background from what I understand. And his dad left, his dad was extremely strict and left the family at an early age. And honestly, knowing, didn't, I didn't know that until reading your book, Tommy, uh, when it really goes into Craven's background. And it seems like that relationship with his father informed so many of Craven's movies going forward, especially when it comes to neglectful parenting. Yeah, I think a lot of, I think a lot of his films are very parent-focused in one way or another, even if it's not completely on the surface. And I think, you know, he definitely seems to have had, you know, quite the relationship. Yeah, like you said, his father left, I believe, when he was four. And right before his sixth birthday, his father, he had heard his father had died um, of a heart attack. So I think that there was, obviously, when you're that young, there are, you know, things like that will affect you in, in multiple ways. Um, I, I think that his father had some issues as well. So a lot of Craven's work definitely deals with family and family issues, you know, whether or not it's wrapped up in a bigger story or like I said, you know, maybe a little more subconscious, but I think a lot of that does stem from what he perceived and what he remembered and what he went through and also a way of working things out. I mean, I remember him mentioning to me that, you know, a lot of the things that we do in movies are a way to work out the things that we had in our own lives. Yeah, it's a real creative form of therapy in some ways. It's you kind of working through your issues, whether it's on the page or on the screen, so that they become normalized and it's a way for you to kind of move past it. I mean, you look at his movies, like Glass House on the Left, as much as that movie is about, you know, you know, Krug and, and all the people doing terrible things to the girls, it's also a movie about the failure of those parents, you know, mm -hmm. to protect their children in a way, but then obviously to avenge, you know, the deaths. And then, you know, you go to the Hills Have Eyes, which 
talk about a family, you know, the family going from trying to protect to being the ones who have to kill, you know, Deadly Blessing is about, in a way, family, especially of a movie that I think Craven could have imbued a lot of what he was feeling and what he grew up with was probably Deadly Blessing because of the religious aspect. Um, I think that a lo- Craven's films are so personal in such a great way how he is able to inject issues of family and how family deals with things and how families relate to one another and how you either come together in the face of adversity or you are torn apart. And I don't think a lot of other directors, particularly at that time when he was, you know, rising through the ranks through his career, were making films like that. And that's why I think his movies got the reviews they did a lot of times, whether or not people enjoyed or gave the horror aspects of the films their due, his reviewers definitely picked up on, you know, the sociological aspects that he was, you know, imparting in his movies. Well, you, you have filmmakers like John Carpenter, who, I mean, is God to me, but at the same time, you know, he had socially relevant themes in some of his films, but I don't think a, like another filmmaker working in horror, aside from George A. Romero, dealt with so many very deep topics uh, on, you know, the way that Wes Craven did. I mean, they could, I, they, could be, they could be appreciated on the surface, but there is so much subtext and metaphorical, like, elements to most of his films. Like, they're very thought-provoking. Definitely, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, specifically, Romero is, is definitely society society and its ills and how that impacts people and impacts their behavior. Craven is the family in so many of his early movies. And I think it's really, really interesting that there maybe weren't more filmmakers after they were, you know, rising and their movies were doing well and being well received in certain circles that more filmmakers didn't find a way to latch on to those themes or themes that they felt were important but it could also be that those themes weren't important to those other filmmakers. They were making movies in a way that they felt, you know, said something. But I think that the Cravens and the Romeros were making movies that spoke to them and allowed them to work through things that were, again, right on the surface for them or, you know, subconscious. One of the most common ways, you know, filmmakers put kids in danger in horror movies is to leave the adults out of it completely um, and just remove them from the equation. You see it in the Friday the 13th movies where what do you do? You put these uh, kids at a campsite without any adult supervision. You see it in the Halloween movies. Like, what do you do? Like the parents are all gone. They're at a park. Like we, Jerry and I are fond of saying that all the parents in Haddonfield are attending like a swingers key party, basically. In the late <laughs> They're just not part of the equation at all. In Wes Craven's movies, not just A Nightmare on Elm Street, but in particular this movie, but throughout his work, the parents are front and center. And it's their inability to parent, it's their inability to protect their children that makes things worse for the kids. Um, You know, in the Scream movies, why is Billy a killer? It's because his mother left him because Sydney's mother... Um, had an affair with his father. And what happens after that, like Billy's mother becomes one of the killers. What happens in the third movie? Sydney's mother rejected uh, Sydney's half brother and he snaps and becomes. Mm-hmm. A killer. 
So you have these issues of like really poor parenting and the nightmare in Elm street in the first movie in particular, you have uh, Thompson, the Thompson parents who are now divorced because they're completely racked with guilt over their actions. And on one hand, you know, their vengeance is rightful. I mean, you have, they took the law into their own hands only after this man was let loose after killing their children, which I can't think of a more horrible thing to suffer through as a parent. Yet at the same time, they're so racked with guilt and so racked with also this anger that's under the surface at their kids. Look what you made us do to protect you. And we can never even tell you about it. We are forced to carry this horrible, horrible secret with us forever to protect you and you will never appreciate it. And I think that's a really deep theme. I mean, it's, and it's drives so much of what happens in first Elm Street in particular. No, no. I was just going to say that one of the things that I love so much about Craven's work, especially the first Nightmare on Elm Street film, is a lot of his work deals with, you know, the sins of the father coming back to haunt, you know, the child. And I think it's a really interesting approach, you know, and even though the film didn't work for me per se, I also feel like he kind of revisited that uh, pretty well with my soul to take. You know, like, I, I think that he was really good at showing the, the long-term effects of, of decisions made by parents. I mean, they were justified in, in going after Freddie, but at the same time, their revenge led to their children being basically murdered one by one, you know? And I think it's a good, it's, a, it's definitely a good film that kind of touches on so many different uh, effects, you know, past past choices you know affecting the future and so on yeah i mean you really don't get any clearer than the sins of the father sins of the parents are revisited on the children i mean it's it's just all there and i think the denial of the parents in in what's really happening is just so sad and tragic and play such a part into their own children dying. The thing they did to protect their children is the thing that is going to kill them. Right. And one of the things I picked up from reading your book, like you do a great job of like talking about some of the scenes that don't make it into the movie, but I think you're just under the surface and we're on Craven's mind. You talk about Glenn's father and Lieutenant Thompson having that conversation after Glenn is killed. And um, John Saxon says like, you know, who do you think did this? And Glenn's father says it was Freddie. It was us. Like, mm-hmm. He came back. He got his revenge. He's getting his revenge on us. He's getting it through the children. You have Marge. And I think this is really haunting. And I wish this made it into the movie. Marge telling Nancy that she wasn't always an only child. That one of the victims of the uh, Elm Street killer of Freddy Krueger was her older sibling. And Mm -hmm. I think that's so haunting. And I wish that had made it into the final cut of the movie because you see in particular, like uh, Ronnie Blakely's character of Marge, like just how tortured she is and like how her life is just descended based on what, uh, based on these actions, based on what they had to do. Well, that deleted scene also, I mean, it really helps show why uh, John Saxon's character is so angry at just the idea that Freddie might be behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's so angry, like, no, we stopped this. He took from us. We killed him. We stopped this. I don't want to hear it. 
you know, so I think that deleted scene would have totally helped flesh that out even more. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we see Marge basically, you know, hitting the bottle nonstop and we kind of understand why, but we don't, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I think that that scene would have added so much, uh, you know, character development that maybe we didn't see, you know, I'm not complaining, but it would have made sense even more of why she is the way she is. And what's an interesting, no, you first, I heard you first. Absolutely. I think what's really interesting about the character of Marge is, and you're hitting on it, I think she is at a level in a way that is so much greater than what is revealed in the actual final cut of the movie. I mean, the script had her describing in great detail the things that were done, that they screwed the door shut because that doesn't make too much noise, that Freddie burst out of the burning building, still brandishing the knives. And essentially she murdered him. He didn't die just by fire. In some of the cut stuff, in some of the early drafts that didn't make it, she slit his throat. And there's so much, I think, that goes into what Marge versus what we learn in the final cut of the movie once mm-hmm. you know all these things, it's almost a miracle that she's, thank, frankly, as functioning as she is, in a way. Um, but I remember, you know, it, it's like one of the lines was something like, no one could get the knives from him, you know, and slit his throat the way I could, or, or just me. It's like intimated that she was the one who kind of put the final nail in that Kruger coffin. Um, See, that, that makes that later scene when Freddie basically kills her make even that much more sense it's that it's almost like it's not just another victim it's revenge it's yeah. you did something so horrible to me it's almost like marge was marge and donald were the kind of ringleaders of this thing but marge wanted him gone in such a way even fire wasn't enough you know when he burst forth and i think that also conversely is interesting that they cut out the fact that nancy had a sibling because it's almost like that would have been too weighty for that character at that point in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, could that, Nancy was so strong. And now that she's learning all this, it's like, there's so much weight on that girl's shoulders already. Maybe not having her know that she had a sibling is better because it could have been too much. Um, but the Marge character to me is completely fascinating. I think what that the- what shows up on screen versus what kind of might have been in the script that, Ronnie read and then ultimately got made um, and just story ideas in the back of Craven's mind that made it on the page or even didn't make it on the page. But what he had in his mind are so great and so big for that character. Um, yeah. You see why she is the way she is. And again, frankly, the fact that she's functioning at the level she is, is almost kind of a miracle. I was watching the commentary last night with Craven uh, Langenkamp and also the, the cinematographer and they were talking about Ronnie Blakely's performance. And it was in particular the moment when Nancy comes home and she's like, mother, what is up with the bars and Ronnie Blakely's uh, delivery there and how like, they were like, you know, she's in her own movie. Like if we're 10 years ahead of the curve, like she's a hundred <laughs> years ahead. Like she was just doing her own thing there. Like, um, what I like about and what I picked up on rewatching this again was how her character at the start of the movie seems pretty well together. And 
as more pieces of the puzzle become apparent to Nancy, and as she gets stronger, you see Marge descend to the point where the last thing she does in the movie is get tucked into bed by Nancy, and Nancy removes her vodka bottle from her, much like you would remove a bottle from a child after you tuck them into bed. So at this point, like they've completely traded places and, you know, it symbolizes Nancy really having to be on her own and be an adult for herself now and her mother no longer being able to really care for her. And I think that's a really wonderful little um, trek that she takes throughout this movie, watching her descend into this real kind of disheveled madness. Absolutely. I think that there's so much going on behind the mind of Marge, because even if nothing had happened, let's pretend Freddie never came back, that woman is still going to be haunted by the things that she planned, by the things that she took part in, and just knowing that at the end of the day, it's vigilante justice, and in her mind, it is justice, but it is still, she took someone's life. So there's no way that she wouldn't have been affected. But then, like you said, as everything starts to unfold and she starts to understand what her daughter is talking about and then her daughter says the name and the hat and it's almost too much. It becomes a breaking point. And then the bottles stop even, you know, at one point the bottle's just right there in the kitchen. And then, you know, oh yeah, it's hiding behind the towels. But, you know, she doesn't even go to her room at that point. She's like, oh, it's safe enough. I'm just going to take a swig leaning up against the wall. Right. She used to hide it a little more, but it becomes less and less, I think. And had this kept going on, I think Marge probably would have imploded. By the way, can we just take a moment and say rest in peace to John Saxon, who yeah. passed yes. away just over the weekend as we were recording this, the news broke that John Saxon passed away. I mean, what an icon. What an absolute legend in Hollywood from working with Bruce Lee and the relationship he had there to his turn as Lieutenant Thompson in um, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies to Black Christmas to his work with Argento and Tenabre. Um, he just raised the, just when you think of like solid character actor and someone that just like raised the level of everything he was in I mean, there was no more of a consummate pro than John Saxon. Oh, he had so much gravitas to like every single thing he did, even like if they were like small parts. I, I loved, I, I still love John Saxon's work. Mm -hmm. Like he's just brilliant. Yeah, John gave everything to every role. Um, everything he had in him it, it was gracious and talented and kind and witty and smart and fun. He was a wonderful man and he is going to be missed by so many people. And he was one of those dudes who looked like he was 45 years old when he was 30, 45 <laughs> years old when he was 45, and 45 <laughs> years old when he was in his 70s. Like at some point, John Saxon just stopped aging and it was just wonderful. And I love the moment in the Never Sleep Again documentary um, where there's a, this, he comes out and he's like, hey, which hairpiece do you want? Like, which, you know, yeah. <laughs> what is going to be the most, like, lieutenant-like one? What fits my character best? And, I mean, what a pro. Just absolutely great as Nancy's father in these movies. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I think what's interesting, going back to what we were saying about how there's almost some form of resentment from the parents 
you know, it's it's not just the Thompsons in this film. That's one thing I noticed during the rewatch is that most of the whole town has this kind of like deep rooted resentment, it seems, for their children, like the mm -hmm. ones that they had after the ones that were killed. You know, like there's this there's a scene that this for some reason never really bothered me before now. But when Rod's death happens and there's that funeral, you know, the the minister that's, you know, speaking at the funeral, like there's such contempt in his voice towards Rod. And the way that every parent and every like adult figure in this film speaks to the children, like there's so much resentment going on that like it's almost like, well, our kids died and now we have you guys, you know? And it, it, there is a lot of, of weird feelings going on with that. I, I think that there's a notion of, while I certainly don't think a lot of parents know, I do think that the parents who did what they did to Kruger, you know, kept that secret. But I feel like there were probably a lot of people who lost children and there's almost like this sort of rage or jealousy like mm -hmm. why is your child alive and mine isn't and you know as terrible as it sounds there were probably some people who were like you know now your child now you will feel what I felt because your child is gone I think that there's the pent-up rage and fear and terror of what they went through and now other people are experiencing it and maybe they wanted to do what the other parents ultimately did, even though they had no idea about it. I think that, you know, they wish they could have stopped it sooner. And again, the theme of parents not being able to protect their children, you know, how could I, what could I have done differently to not let this Fred Krueger get my child? I, you know, you, you live with that guilt. I'm, I'm sure of what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? You know, and because I didn't do X, Y, or Z, my child is gone. I, I know it's a horror movie and I know it's just a movie, but it's so smart. And there's so much going on in what Wes put down on paper and ultimately filmed. And you could talk about it for days just thematically because I think that was the genius of Wes Craven in most, everything he wrote, everything that came from within him was I'm not just going to scare you with music and jumps and makeup. I'm going to scare you because what I'm writing is real. The feelings that these characters are going through are feelings that people have gone through and you may have gone through. And if you didn't, I want you to go through it. And I really think that that is why we still talk about Wes Craven and his movies. It's not just because we love the movies. It's because he had something to say and he was masterful at saying it. That and I mean, this film, like I said, it could be enjoyed on the surface, but there's a lot of personal aspects to even, I, I think, the uh, just the production and development side. You know, Craven didn't just come up with a, a great idea to scare people. You know, he took all that kind of hurt feelings that maybe he felt from like his own father leaving and the frustrations with that to a like combination of multiple things that happened in his life or that he studied to make this great stew of a story. I mean, I've always been so fascinated by, by you know, the story of when he was a kid, you know, a, alone with his sibling, you know, like, you know, we've all heard that story, you know, there's this kind of like 
vagrant man outside with like a dirty hat and you know kind of like a very dirty kind of disheveled face that just stared through their window scaring the hell out of him like he got this sense of enjoyment and fulfillment from scaring the hell out of Craven and his sibling I mean I, I, I that's transported onto Freddy who just gets off not, I mean, not so much sexually, obviously, but like just gets off on the idea of like this fear and hopelessness in the people that he goes after. I, I have always found that so fascinating. Well, that and Craven drawing inspiration from uh, Camille Rouge and the Killing Fields and reading this series of articles in the Los Angeles Times, I think in like 1981 or 82. And I think I'll put a link to them in the show notes here. Um, but about these young men from Cambodia that had survived basically genocide uh, in their country and were in the United States. And there were these young men like in their early 20s, otherwise very healthy, that were like dying in their sleep and that were like waking up screaming from nightmares and then suffering like heart failure and dying in their sleep. And there's, you know, he drew tremendous inspiration from these real life terrors that persons face. And I know there's even moments like Nancy pulling a coffee pot out from behind her um, desk is taken directly from these articles in the LA Times where one young man stayed up basically five days straight and his parents he would finally thought he fell asleep, gave him sleeping pills and he fell asleep and they thought that the incident was behind them only to wake up to him screaming and running in and he was dead. Uh, his heart had stopped. And when they went through his belongings, they found a coffee pot plugged in, hidden away in the um, bedroom closet. They found all the sleeping pills they had given him, like spit out and like hidden away because he was just terrified of going to sleep, all stemming from this trauma that he had experienced in his home country. And that to me was, you know, is so much more scary than you know, just some guy in a mask running around with a knife killing people because, you know, they're having sex or doing drugs. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I think that Craven does well is he takes real life and wraps a really good, scary story around it and makes it into a movie that scares you and at the same time it makes you think. And I, I with that story and the fact that he had his own, you know, terrifying encounter with, you know, again, a homeless person or whoever it was making a conscious decision to scare this little boy who was Wes Craven and even using, you know, part of the name from a school bully in, in terms of what does he call Freddie, you know, Craven tapped into his own, you know, personal fears and experiences. And I think that's why this movie works because it's all so real because it was in many ways so real. That, and it's so fantastical in a visual way, but also at the same time, it's very relatable. I mean, the way that he perfectly uh, puts reality and kind of the dream world together in this film. I mean, who hasn't had those dreams that feel so real like you're there, but you're doing these very surreal things around you? I mean, there's so many, I think, sequences in the film 
that really touches on that combination of feeling like something's really going on, but also being, you know, dreaming at the same time. Yeah. And that's definitely one of the things that, you know, um, Craven and Jacques Haitken, who shot the film, talked about quite a bit is that blurring of the line of, are you in a dream? Are you not? And some people say, well, it's obvious, you know, it's much darker and there's fog. And, and, you know, Craven had mentioned specifically leaves in the hallway of the school when Nancy has her school time dream. But it's not that moment. It's the moments before where you think everything's okay. And then, oh no, you're in a dream. So it's like, when you think, you know, you're not actually right until it's too late. And I think you're kind of taking that journey with the characters as well. Nancy falls asleep at her desk and you're not really sure if she's exactly asleep until she goes into the hallway and all those things start happening. And by that point, just like the character, it's, oh God, this is a nightmare. So you are, you're already worked up, but now it's too late. There's no turning back. You have to go, you know, further and you have to go into it and you have to go into that terror. And they did such a great job throwing the audience off with those blurred lines. I think obviously in the later movies, it became a little more obvious and that's fine because the fantastical aspects are kind of what, you know, made those movies so memorable. But this first movie was just, it was about the terror, about being in a nightmare, not being in a nightmare and oh no, I'm in the nightmare, now what? And your heart just starts racing. And I think he just did such a great job um, the creating that. The first time I saw this movie, it wasn't Freddy that scared the living shit out of me. I mean, you know, I, I still to this day, you know, I'm, I'm 40 and, you know, I still get terrified of this first film. Like it still scares me. But more than Freddy, it's, it's one of those first moments in the film that I remember even being a kid watching it for the first time and going, oh, no, like this, it, I'm supposed to feel safe right now and I don't. And it's that sequence where nancy's sleeping and you know and we get that spandex shot of freddie coming through the wall like it looks like any other person being asleep it looks like i look when i'm asleep in bed you know it's a safe space and then you get that sequence which which they try to recreate for the re with a remake that i think was just such a mist because you get that like 10 15 effect in the first film that looks phenomenal to this day and is terrifying you don't know what's coming out of that wall. You know, and as, as someone who watches it for the first time, that's the moment that your heart starts racing because you're, you're wondering, okay, is she asleep? Is she awake? What is going on? What ride am I about to go on? And I think that that shot perfectly sets the audience up for this just cornucopia of just like terror. Like it's, it's unparalleled, I think. And, and that was the first shot for me that really just scared the living hell out of me. It's an amazing moment. And, you know, definitely give Jim Doyle, you know, the effects guy, his due, um, you know, for bringing that to life. It is definitely one of those, what in the world is happening? I don't think I've seen this before. And yeah, you don't know what is in store if something like that can happen. Interestingly, I don't know how many people know this, but originally it was supposed to be more um, physical and corporeal where there is plaster dust. Nancy realizes that something has happened and she sees the plaster dust and the wall has gashes in it. Um, and I think ultimately what they did 
was in a way so much more effective because it doesn't scream the obviousness of there's something going on. It played with, is it a dream? Is it not? Nancy didn't know what was real and what wasn't. Um, it's a fantastic moment in a movie. And I, without a doubt, agree with you that the remake botched it completely. You know, it's funny. You mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned the gashes um, that weren't used. And it's, it makes me think of that moment in um, Dream Master when, you know, they're talking at the high school or two, where their three kids are talking at the high school mm-hmm. and they walk away and you have like the four gashes in the high school locker and it's like neon red and it's kind of a cool <laughs> moment, but it also like, if you turn your brain on for a minute, it doesn't make It makes absolutely sense. no sense. But it's still like, <laughs> hey, you know it's what? It's a great visual. No, no hate for Remy Harlan here. Like absolutely. No, that movie, Remy listen, Harlan you is. know, just to go on a quick, Mm-hmm. tangent about nightmare four nightmare four is a such a great looking film like mm-hmm. there's I so many it. fantastic visuals in that movie um uh, but also the gashes in the wall the plaster i mean you know talk about revisiting something um new nightmare when the earthquake happens after chase leaves the room and heather's still getting ready the you know the cracks in the wall open and right. it's such a subtle kind of reminder to the audience of you know Kruger is here and and a reminder to Nancy slash Heather you know as a character that Kruger is kind of always going to be with her um it's just everything about all of these little moments I think are things that when you look at them individually you go oh yeah that was really neat but then when you start to think about it and you see how all of these little tiny pieces fit together it really kind of forms this narrative of you know step by step you start at one you go to two you go to five you go to nine and all of a sudden you're at a 10 and it's just the terror keeps building well i think that those dreams too we've all had those dreams where it mirrors the real world around us and there's only these real subtle distinctions between us where it's like it looks like our everyday life it looks like our everyday world but then there's weird things that happen in it that because of the way our brains work, because basically the frontal part of your brain is no longer exerting that control over the back limbic system, you accept it more in the dream state and you're kind of aware you're dreaming, but not really. And you accept all that weirdness. And I think even though the later movies would get a lot more fantastical and there would be these enormous set pieces, I do think that the dreams work best in this movie because you're not, you're not quite sure when they're starting and when they're ending. Um, Just think of like Nancy looking in the mirror saying, it's just a dream. It isn't real. And then Kruger comes bursting through it. Like what a tremendous fucking jump scare that is. So yeah, I think that's why this works so well. I think what makes the first film so wonderful, I mean, to me, is later on in the films, and, you know, I'm quite fond of, you know, the later ones too, but later on, it became more about what can we do that's crazy, you know? Can we turn this weightlifting woman into a cockroach, you know? As much as I love that movie, (laughs) they're kind of like sequences of what the hell can we do? Can we have a dog piss fire to resurrect Freddy, you know? (laughs) Like, which I still think is the weirdest scene in the entire series. But the first nightmare, it's a continual just heel of of where it's going. It starts off with something a little off-putting of Freddy kind of coming through the wall a little bit. And then Tina's death is such a a step up from that as far as putting fear in its audience. Because you're watching it and you're wondering, 
what the hell am I watching? This is, this is insanity. And then we get, you know, the bathtub sequence, just like a, yet another place that you're supposed to feel safe, you know, bathing. It's, it's, you know, washing, you know, away the grime, the dirt, you know, people feel safe in the bath. That's why it's so relaxing and taking that away from its audience, you know, nope, you're not safe here. Well, and then I we think- get that. No, 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 no. I was going to say, and then we get what I think is the most fantastical. And yeah, we'll probably say that word a lot because I think that that sums up Nightmare on Elm Street perfectly. We get that fantastical scene with Glenn, you know, another place, uh, you know, going back to being in your bed safe. He gets pulled into his safe place and then a pool of blood comes out. By the end of the film, it's so over the top, but not in a bad way to where the nightmare feels more real to the audience than reality does. Well, I think that's the interesting thing, kind of just circling back to what we were talking about a few moments ago. The later films became an exploitation of the kids' fears. She Mm -hmm. didn't like cockroaches. Debbie didn't like cockroaches in Dream Master, so she turns into a cockroach. You know, that kind of thing. And one could, on the surface, look at the original Elm Street and say, no, 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 it's not about that at all because it doesn't seem like it is. But, you know, one of the things that I wrote about and after talking to, you know, the cast and the crew and Craven, you know, I I mentioned that if you really think about it, their deaths kind of mock their lives. Tina is the girl who is kind of the sexually easy one. She dies half naked, bloody in a bed. And Rod Lane is the bad boy and he dies in jail. And Glenn, the jock who is supposed to, you know, enact this plan and quote unquote protect his girlfriend instead decides to go to sleep and dies as well. And I think that while that isn't exploiting the fears that these kids have, I think in a subconscious way, it exploits the perils of what these teenagers were going through and the things that maybe they were subconsciously afraid of. I don't think that Tina ever thought, you know, I don't want to end up like my mother. I mean, my goodness, she's shacking up with that guy. I mean, what's that all about? But, you know, what are her options? And I think the same thing with Rod. Like, did Rod really think he was going to go on to become something any bigger than maybe what the town saw him as? So I think that even the original film does have that kind of slight... Mm -hmm exploitation of the fears it's just not so overt it's not i'm gonna crush a cockroach Uh uh-oh she's gonna become (laughs) a cockroach you know that kind of thing or uh uh-oh carlos is deaf something is gonna happen with his ears you know that kind of thing um which by the way is such a great moment in freddie's death like that whole screeching of the chalkboard that's not you know we're not talking about that now though um but anyway i think that all of these movies have something going on you know beneath the surface i i never personally believe that any of the Elm Streets, whether it's your favorite or your least favorite, I don't think that these are cardboard set them up to knock them down characters. Oh, I, I agree. don't personally believe agree. that. I think a lot of horror films tend to do that. And maybe that's a symptom of, you know, it's on the page, but it can't make it because there's no time to shoot it all or it gets edited out. But I think that a lot of what the Elm Street series did so well was give you characters that in some way, even if it's only one of them, you can kind of connect with, and that made it more real and more personal. I would say, like, the, the lesson that, if, if Wes Craven took any lesson from John Carpenter's Halloween, 
it wasn't about the violence of John Carpenter's Halloween. It was about the audience feeling for these kids and getting to know these kids and empathizing with these kids so that when they did die, you felt that much stronger towards them. You felt bad. You felt hurt that these kids were taken away. You wanted to see them live overall. And so many other quote unquote slasher movies took the wrong lesson. Like it was just like, all right, get to the cool kills. And we have to like, I think, um, what is it? Friday the 13th part five, like Danny Steinman said, he was given the imperative from film and uh, from Mancuso jr saying you have to have an act of violence every five minutes like that kind of after a while, it gets kind of boring, you know, because like how much can you really watch at that point, just put all the clips on YouTube and we can just watch like coolest death scenes in a Friday the 13th movie. Um, and the Elm street, movie and really the series as a whole they're not body count movies you have what three deaths four if you count um nancy's mother in a nightmare in elm street but you really feel for them like amanda weiss is in two scenes before she's killed off but in like the 20 minutes that she's on screen or not even 20 full 18 it's 18 minutes she's she's killed around the 18 minute mark okay you get so much information about her in that limited time you get this really clear picture about how fractured her home life is when you see her mom come in like super disheveled and unable to offer any sort of comfort and then mom is just gone to the point where Nancy feels comfortable having her boyfriend not only stay over, but stay in mom's bed because she knows mom isn't coming home that night. And even if she did, she probably would be too fucked up to notice. Um, and she's great in that movie. Oh, she really is. And Amanda is fantastic really in that That's role. what I was going to say. I was going to say, Tommy, I mean, you worked with her on a film of your own. I mean, she's just phenomenal in that as well. Oh, thank you. She is a powerhouse of an actor. I mean, there is nothing not real about every moment Amanda gives on screen because she just understands and lives the characters Mm -hmm. um, that she's portraying. And I think you're right. I think that we get so much about Tina and that's not only due to what Craven put or didn't put in the script. It's what Amanda is able to give with her looks and the lines of dialogue that she has and the way she says them and the fact that, yeah, she's in her mother's bed having sex. She's becoming her mother, even though that's probably not what Amanda's character really wants to do. And I think we are so drawn to her. And I love the idea that she sort of, you know, and many people have mentioned this, the Janet Lee of Elm Street. You know, she's the pretty blonde. She's in the opening you think that she's going to be your lead. And then all of a sudden, 18 minutes into the film, she's not just killed. She's brutally murdered Mm -hmm. after an insanely terrifying nightmare. For my money, her nightmare is without a doubt the scariest in the movie. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And the shadows and the tooth in the window and the whisper of her name, everything about that sequence is no pun intended nightmare inducing. It is well, that and the the, the this is God part yes. of that scene still to this day just freaks me the hell out. It's almost like when you look at that sequence, it's this perfect almost mini film that gives you everything that you also need to know about Kruger. He 
doesn't talk very much in the first movie at all. But when he says something, it's terrifying. And then he cuts his own fingers off, you know, just to show you that you are not in control. And just Amanda's reactions are just so pitch perfect. And the way that she did her death scene, which was so physical on top of emotional, and the way she delivered that, it's just, it sold everything that came after that. I think without Amanda's performance in all of that stuff and her death scene, I don't think that we would have taken the movie quite as seriously because there was nothing funny about anything that Tina went through. This was not a movie where you have a chuckle to relieve the tension. This was horror. I don't think the most Craven's... I don't think Craven gets enough recognition for just how visceral and violent his movies can be. I really don't. I, we think of him as like this cerebral intellectual director and almost a philosopher on horror. And he is, but you go back and you look at how brutal films like the last house and the left and the hills have eyes are and yeah you can dismiss them as exploitation and like low budget and a young guy getting his kicks out but you go back and you look at tina's death in this movie you go back and look at just how violent the scream movies are for especially compared to like the tame slashers that came out in their wake um and even craven's like script for Elm Street 3, where he's calling, like, Freddie's calling Nancy a cunt in that script, like, just like how violent Craven could be and how he really got all his aggression out on the page and on the screen. But Tommy, could you talk a little bit about how that effect was created for Tina's death? Because I think a lot of folks may know it, but this is just such a fascinating detail in the making of this, like, low-budget, less than $2 million dollar brilliant movie um yeah i mean obviously you know for the people who know and now for the people who don't it was a revolving room um basically it was on a you know a giant kind of i don't know how to explain a turntable and they were able to turn the room and everything in that room was starched and hardened so when it was upside down it looked like it was right side up and um it took a lot of energy and, you know, getting herself ready. Amanda had trouble in that room. I mean, she's definitely talked about it where it's like, it really played with her mind that up was down and down was up because it all looked so real. And there's that great photo of, of uh, Amanda and Wes where they're standing and the room is upside down. And even just looking at that is so disconcerting. And even Craven had said to Amanda, like, come on, we just got to, you know, let's do this. And then he stepped into the room. He gets and disoriented. He had, yeah, he admitted that it, it was far more disorienting that he had anticipated. So I think that it was like him actually kind of living it the way Amanda had lived it for him to realize, okay, yeah, this is, this is really, really crazy. But yeah, I think, um, again, Jim Doyle was one of the people behind that and that revolving room and it was really to the film's benefit because it just allowed them to do some really great things obviously they they were able to reuse that for um glenn's death as well but what's interesting is in that moment with amanda and um nick corey you see they're on two different planes he is right side up and she's upside down he was strapped in as well 
And that is, I think, one of the first times in film where you're seeing two totally different physical things mat like matching at the same time to give the effect that they were going for. Because, you know, one was upside down and one was right side up and they flip-flopped it. it. It's just such an incredible effect. And, you know, it worked, you know, when Fred Astaire is, you know, quote unquote, dancing on the ceiling and everything. And, and now you have Amanda being gutted. And they said that room so balanced. They said you could turn it and spin it and hold it in place with like a finger. Mm-hmm. That's, That's how awesome. balanced that room was. I love how they use that same approach with uh, Cronenberg's The Fly as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, also like Lou Carlucci, one of the effects people on the first film, you know, you know, he and Jim Doyle, like they just, they really just kind of figured out ways to make these things work. And yeah, it was, it was perfectly balanced and it just, for a low budget movie, especially, it just becomes how did they do that? And that is the magic that that movie Elm Street was able to pull off so well is the nightmares were so crazy in this low budget movie. And it's all due to, you know, the people behind the scenes who, you know, West streamed it up and then, you know, Lou Carlucci and Jim Doyle and Charlie Bellardinelli, they all just found a way to make these things come to life. You know, we, we talked about Amanda being in the film for the first 18 minutes and still leaving such a big mark on the film as far as uh, her performance. You know, I, I think I've always been so taken back with how good and crucial Robert England is to this film. And he's in it, I think, combined like even less than she is, if I'm right. Yes, yeah, like, he is actually in the film... And, and this is not just physically, this is kind of like the, the specter of Kruger or the physicality of Kruger. It's just short of eight minutes. And what is completely amazing is A Nightmare on Elm Street feels like it is a Fred Kruger movie. He permeates that film, yeah. but he is barely in that movie. And I think that is an amazing credit to the way Wes created the character. It is without a doubt, to Robert's credit for how powerful he was bringing the character to life. But it also goes to show that Wes was not just creating a monster movie. So much of that movie, like we talked about before, is about the kids and about the parents. It's about so many different things than just, again, every five minutes something horrific happening, because that's not what this movie was. Although it feels like Kruger is so omnipresent in the film because of that powerful performance that Robert gave. And again, the way that Wes crafted the moments of Kruger and the moments of violence in this film and in many films of of Craven's with violence, his violence is a punctuation mark on a bigger moment, on something smart or compelling. And I think that's why we remember the violence so well and feel that it's so terrible and so impactful because it is a punctuation point on the point he is making. I think Wes and everyone involved in the first film uh, recognized that Freddie needed to be played by someone who was a, was an actor, you know, not, not just an, yes. another dude that's going to be in the credits as like, you know, stunts by this person, you know, like we've, you know, in the documentary, uh, you know, there's that scene where they talked about how they initially just got a stuntman basically to do Freddy in the second movie and it didn't work out. Well, 
there is a lot of makeup on Robert England in that first film, but it, there's there's also a lot of personality that England has just in general. I mean, anyone who's met him knows that that guy is just larger than life. I mean, even talking about the most minute things. I mean, the first time I met him, I think was 2007 at Comic-Con. There was a line of like 20 people and he still talked to me for 10 minutes about the golden age of cinema. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's a presence to Robert England and just the way he is as a person, let alone in this film. I mean, yeah, he's in, in it for like what you said, a combined total of, I think, eight minutes, he said. But the, what he does in those, in those few minutes, I think left such a mark on horror to where like, it's no wonder that the films became mostly about Freddy because Robert England is just so good in that character. And he's so terrifying, especially in Tina's uh, A Nightmare. I mean, there's, there's, he relishes in the fear that he gives his audiences. Like, and you could tell, you could tell he enjoys playing this character because it's such a good way to kind of just exercise every maniacal thing. He's phenomenal in this movie, even with being in it such a small amount of time. Well, he also brought a real physicality to the role. And he is not your typical movie monster. He is not 6'4 and built like a football player. He's a smaller guy. He was slight. You know, he had a slighter build. But he, like you said, he embodied that role. He became the part. He knew what that character was out to do, which was not just kill these kids, but destroy them emotionally, terrify them to the core, and, and toy with them before he actually did the act of killing them. And you could see in his eyes how he, as a character, relished that. And, he loves that violation, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that is why Robert is synonymous with Fred Krueger, because he just brought something that I think no one expected. I think, you know, Robert tells a story. I walked into the room, I was all punked out. He is not your traditional boogeyman. And I think that's why it works because from the get-go, it's unsettling that, you know, someone who is not the 6'4 bodybuilder or, you know, um, football player can get you, can destroy you, can tear you apart. I try to think of a, a character and an actor in horror that are more intrinsically linked than Robert England and Freddy Krueger. And the only name I could come up with was Boris Karloff in Frankenstein's Monster. I mean, even Lugosi as Dracula, you have someone like Christopher Lee, who is every bit as iconic, I think, as Lugosi is. They're almost interchangeable. And I, I could not come up with anyone besides Karloff and, and Frankenstein that are so linked together. I mean, you think of the Halloween series and we all have our favorite Michael Myers. So I think for my money, it's probably Dick Warlock in part two, but there's just almost anyone can play that role. I mean, you think of like, I think Nick Castle talks about like the direction Carpenter gave him. Like, well, what's my motivation here? It's like, yeah, I'll just walk like this. It's all I care about. Um, you know, Kane Hodder obviously brought more personality and really thought about his role as Jason Voorhees. But to me, he's not even the, the definitive Jason. To me, it's really, you know, I think, Ted, Jerry, you and I both say, like, give us Ted White or um, Derek Mears. Like, those are my two favorite Jasons. To me, like, this movie, and we saw a great actor in Jackie Earl Haley, just tremendous actor 
um, who gave me every reason to be excited for his performance as Kruger in the remake. Um, and he just, it just didn't work. I just think that A Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger are forever going to be linked with Robert Englund. And he talks about how he drew inspiration for this character. He talks about sitting in that makeup chair and having David Miller slather layer after layer of KY jelly on him <laughs> under this excruciating makeup. Um, while, well, while Heather and, and Amanda and Johnny Depp and are Nick just, are being pampered yep. and just getting powder because they're so and he's gorgeous. he's like, you fuckers. <laughs> you know, and he talks about, he's like, that was a moment for him. He's like, I have my motivation. This is why I hate those kids. I, I can use this. Like England was always thinking. And sometimes it sounds like a bit of hooey. Like he talks about like, does he want a fucker or fighter when it comes to Freddie and Nancy? And he talks about the power of myth. And it can be a little bit over the top, but I think there's real, I think there's like, there's real truth to what he says. Um, I literally right before we started recording, I watched this five minute documentary on the creation of Freddie. And one of the things that England says is Freddie is the guy who knows what's in your underwear drawer. He knows mm-hmm. what's in your diary. And I think Jerry, you said like violation is such a part of what makes Freddy Krueger scary that he could easily kill his victims in their first dream. They're pretty much helpless against him, but that's mm-hmm. not enough. He, that's not what he's out to do. He's out to destroy them physically, mm-hmm. emotionally, spiritually. And mm-hmm. I think that that is why Elm Street resonates with so many people and why, you know, England is so linked to Freddy. I think not just because he's been in X amount of movies and as they went on, he had more and more personality. It, it was this isn't a whole other topic, but it was seen at the at the filming of part two already, where they tried to put a guy in a mask and it just was not going to work. It didn't work. It was like the care. It was like Robert England didn't just go, yeah, I'm going to go play this you know scary guy and and be done with it. He really thought about again mm-hmm. what that character was after, how that character would achieve those goals. But I think again, the other thing about the movie is, in terms of characters, is you have Amanda who in a, such a short amount of time gave us such a memorable character and it's not just because of her death. You have Heather. I mean, Heather was such an anchor in that movie. She yeah. was someone we all knew in our lives. She was our babysitter or our next door neighbor or our older sister. And she was able to bring such a gravitas to that role. And something that I always think about is what sets her apart from, you know, the idea of the quote-unquote final girls is that she had time and she had the wherewithal and the smarts to decide, I need to learn about my adversary and I need to understand how I can defeat this person and I need to know what to do if X, Y, and Z happens. And I think a lot of other movies never give a lot of final girls that chance. It's just the final chase scene and they do what they can with what they have in front of them. You know, Laurie Strode had a knitting needle and Laurie Strode was able to break that window because she had to. Laurie Strode did not have a lot of time to figure out who, what, where, when, why Michael Myers. But what I loved about the character of Nancy and what Heather brought to it is she brought to it the realness of and the strength of I'm not going to lay down and let this destroy me. 
I am going to figure out what's going on and why and how I can stop it. And if no one else will help me, then I've got to go twice as hard, three times as hard. And I think that the original film and its characterization is why we're still talking about this movie, even if we don't maybe enough talk about that aspect. And I will end with this because I know it's time sensitive for you, Tommy, and I want to give you a moment to let us know what you have going on. I think that that power of Nancy translates to the third movie and you see what she's chosen to do with her life. She's chosen to study these nightmares and to help others so that they won't go through what her friends went through. Um, I have so much more to say about this movie. Um, <laughs> which, and I know we're we pressed all do. time tonight. So this is going to be part one of probably 17 episodes <laughs> on, but we Just are going to be... Movie. Jerry and I are going to return next week and talk more about A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, before we move on to others. And we'll have other guests. I just, I don't know who quite yet, but I know we have a number of people that have wanted to join. But I know we're pressed for time, Tommy. Well, one of the things I love about this film Mm -hmm. is, and again, we're talking about it decades later, Mm -hmm. and the fact that there are other people who want to talk about it, everyone has their own take. Everyone has their personal experience with Fred Krueger. And I think that's like, again, the magic of this movie and the power of this thing that Wes Craven dreamed up that I love how everyone passed on it at the beginning. And yet here it is, you know, to the genius of Wes Craven and to the genius and credit of Bob Shea who decided to take a chance. I mean, look, Bob Shea tried to sell this movie to other people as well and they passed. And that's when New Line his fledgling company took a gamble and they were like, you know what, we're going to make it happen and we're going to do it. And it was so, you know, problematic at times. I mean, it was as tough as it was wonderful to get this movie off the ground. I mean, this movie came together as many times as it fell apart before it finally came together. But it's one of those success stories where every piece of this Elm street puzzle fell into the place it was supposed to, because I think had it not, gone through the trials and tribulations it had gone through had craven not gotten passes from the people that did pass and had bob shea sold it to someone else who financed it as opposed to him taking a chance and scraping together the money in the myriad of ways he did i don't think that we would be talking about the same movie i'm not even sure we would be talking about the movie anymore right you talk about the trials right down to like two weeks before the movie's supposed to go out to like 200 theaters. He gets a call from the, the company developing the print saying, Hey, we're not, we're holding your movie because your line of credit's been stopped. So either you pay us or you don't get this, you don't get your movie. Just like yeah, I'm, right down to like two weeks before it goes out. Well, and there was also the issue where some theaters were showing the movie and they were dimming the projection bulbs to save money. And Jesus. like P- New Line had to get involved and be like, you got to not do that because mm-hmm. people can't see what's going on on the screen. Um, I mean, there were just so many things about this movie that fell into place in a way that they did that I think made this movie the memorable and iconic thing that it is from the script and the direction and you know, the producing and the effects and the cast. And I, it's just a movie that I think will be talked about, you know, for as many decades as it is now, after the original release, we're still going to be talking about this movie. Absolutely. Um, and, and I'm glad. And I think that it's a testament to 
the power when you really believe in something as hard as it can be to get something made that it can all work out the way it's supposed to work out. And I think in terms of A Nightmare on Elm Street, that's exactly what happened for everyone involved. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, what are you working on now? What is the next project for you? I am currently working on the sequel to my novel Jinxed, which is entitled Cursed. It's the second book of that trilogy. And I also have a new book coming out on December 1st entitled Write Christmas. And that's sort of my take on A Christmas Carol and It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Christmas fantasy with a little hint of darkness. And I'm really excited about getting that out there because it kind of melds my love of the Christmas holiday, but also just how things can change in an instant and sometimes not always for the best. So those are really the, the things that I'm, I'm focusing on right now. And where can our listeners find you online? Online, you can definitely find me on Twitter. Um, my handle is Tommy Hudson, T-H-O-M-M-Y-H-U-T-S-O-N. And also same thing for Instagram. I love Twitter. Come find me, follow me, interact. I love it. I love to, to do that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I wanted to say that the other night I threw on at 6 p.m. Crystal Lake Memories on the couch. And I'm like, I'll just watch like, you know, the first <laughs> part of it. And then I'll like go and do whatever I had to do. And then it was 2.30 in the morning. And I'm like, I'm going to power through this. Like I literally did not move off my spot in the sofa because I just found I, it like such an entertaining rewatch. I, I had the same say, thing this week, actually. <laughs> I have to say that's like the greatest compliment that we have heard on the making of these documentaries is people say, oh, I'm only going to watch the first section of the Elm Street documentary. And then they go, and then I, before I knew it, four hours was up. And the same thing, like you said, with Crystal Lake Memories, oh, I'm only going to watch a little and then you realize, oh, I just sat here for six hours. And I, I'm so pleased that these documentaries are, are having the life that they are and that we were able to explore these movies in a way that opened them up to, you know, the fans in a new way, but also just open them up to people who might not have even really thought too much about Elm Street or Friday the 13th, but now have a new appreciation for these movies because of the way they were made and the stories behind them. So on behalf of everyone who helped bring those documentaries to life, because I have to tell you, they are so, so incredibly difficult to make in a way that we want to try and please ourselves, but also please the viewer. Um, everyone is so appreciative. Well, as great as the Never Sleep Again documentary film is, the book is, and again, like it's 350 pages on just the making of the first movie. Um, it is it was just an invaluable resource in like doing the background for this show and thinking of new perspectives on the movie. Um, is that, sadly, that book is out of print, is it? The book is out of print. The hardcover, which um, I'm still so proud of and so happy that so many people were a part of that campaign to get that made because again, I, I love the movie and I feel like it needed something to just really showcase the beauty of that movie and, and the hard work everyone put into it. Um, that is definitely out of print. And the paperback is out of print currently. I don't know what the future of that book holds. But, you know, again, check me out on Twitter and follow me on Twitter for updates because there might be a little something happening with that version of the book. So that's all I can tease right now. 
Um, oh, but I'd love, so. I'd love to get it out there for more eyeballs. And um, I'm really proud of that book. I worked really hard on that. And I had such a joy, you know, re-interviewing everyone um, from the documentary and finding people who have never talked about the movie before to reveal these fantastic stories. I mean, some of the stories that, you know, the makeup people told, the hair people told are just so great and right. so in-depth and so behind the scenes. But I'm I'm really, really proud of that. And I do hope that it finds an even the, bigger audience in the future. The stuff about Ronnie Blakely, like doing her own makeup and hair and then having like the makeup director basically like make force her to empty out her purse and collect it all <laughs> and lock it up. I mean, just basically take all her stuff and lock it away so she could not mess up her work. Just like things like that, I just found... And again, if you, if you even casually enjoy A Nightmare on Elm Street, um, it, this book is an essential read. I mean, it just flies right by. So, well, I, and, oh, and it's just one of those things too, like a, good co a great compliment that I was so happy to hear was that a lot of people said it's not just a great book about the making of Elm Street, but it reads as a really good primer on what it's like to make a movie mm -hmm, in general, yeah. just a general filmmaking book because making movies is really hard. Yeah. It's, you know, it's something that you have to decide, I'm going to give a lot of, if not all of my blood, sweat and tears to happen. And you don't even know if it's going to get seen. And if it does get seen, you have no idea how the reception is going to be. So you're really putting out so much of yourself physically and emotionally when you make a movie. And I think that the book really shows what Craven and company went through to just make this movie that no one had any idea would become what it had become. So thank you so much for joining us, Tommy. I know we want to get you on again. I think you are volunteering to change my mind about New Nightmare. Oh um, my gosh, I will do everything in my power to change mm -hmm. your mind on Same New here. Nightmare. Same so I know like that will be another episode, like a little inside baseball, the episodes that we've gotten the most person's request to be on our dream master and new nightmare to the point where i'm like how are we going to make this work so i think that might be another multi-episode um show but i know you have to hop off tommy jerry can you stick around for like two minutes yeah of course perfect well thank you thanks so again much, guys man. i'm so glad to have been able to share this time with you and yeah I, we could talk about this movie for 20 days but um i'm so glad that we got to kind of talk about the things that i think make this movie a movie important enough to continue talking about. And I think um, it's great. I think that this was a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much, man. We look forward to talking to you again that. soon. Come on. That was really fun. Oh, so it was, I have, man. So I have so much more, though. Oh, me too. <laughs> you know, I have so much more. So listeners, um, thank you so much to Tommy Hudson for jumping on. But like Jerry and I are just saying, like, both of us have so much more to discuss when it comes to this movie that we're going to break this into um, multiple episodes. So, uh, Jerry, what do you have that you're working on right now, my friend? Uh, a lot of articles, uh, some interviews. I, I just talked to Adam Mason for Dread Central, who directed Hangman, who directed the very controversial Pig. I don't know if you've ever heard of that movie. I think uh, I have. Oh, man. It was like a mythical movie that was never shown and then they finally showed it at a festival like seven years later and it's like extremely controversial to the point where the director adam mason just does not even like talking about it he mm -hmm. he has worked so hard to not have this movie released i talked to him about that uh, he has a new quarantine movie 
that Michael Bay's producing that he's making right now with like Demi Moore, tons of huge people. Uh, so yeah, that is a huge interview that's going to be going online this week. Multiple essays, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And um, how is the film scoring going? Because you also have like some short films. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I finished uh, one a while back called Hangnail that made its debut. And it's a lot of fun, but hard to watch because it's very like gory and squeamish. But I'm working on one right now. Uh, I can't say what it's called, but it's for a filmmaker I really admire. Uh, and it, it's it's kind of like a cross between David Lynch and Cormac McCarthy, which sounds weird. It's it's like if I, I don't know. It's 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 like David Lynch did No Country for Old Men, but cult. Interesting. And it's okay. Black and white. It it's been so crazy to do the music for that because like I'm trying to do stuff that I don't typically do because a lot of stuff that I typically do musically kind of has that synthy kind of John Carpenterish vibe, and I'm trying to go a little more eerie so yeah yeah totally and you released an album on Bandcamp recently as well correct what's weird like really quickly like at the beginning of this quarantine thing i was going through a lot of depression because it's just i'm stuck in these walls you know you don't get out you're kind of cabin fever and you know i started making music again and i was just like yeah i'll just make one little ep and i released that and it was kind of concept thing of like someone listening to a radio show while being socked by killers this instrumental ep and then next thing you know it's like every week or two i keep releasing more and more i think i've probably released 25 to 30 songs during quarantine no dude like there's there's such a huge discography on Bandcamp right now for like music that i've done it's it's and is it is it all under the album rainy days for ghosts or is that yeah yeah that's that's where people can find it if you are interested it's rainy days for ghosts uh dot bandcamp.com uh you know and uh, i i love instrumental music especially score work and that's and me doing this music kind of led to being able to score new film projects which is really awesome uh because i love doing it so much like i love writing about horror it's the greatest love of my life creatively but i've always i've been a musician since i was 15 you know i'm pushing 40 now and yeah yeah I, i love i love creating these things Excellent. Well, I want to take a minute to end by thanking our patrons. Uh, We have a few new patrons that have signed up to um, go on and support our show. And I can't thank you guys enough. It goes a long way to helping Jerry and I pay for the hosting. I know we're working on a website for the show as well. Um, And it just allows us to get our hands on things like Tommy's book and you know, the films and documentaries. So your support goes such a long way. Um, I want to thank our three latest patrons, um, the Masked Lama uh, for joining <laughs> the Michael stage at $2. I, I love that. that I absolutely love that. Fun fact, I used to wear wrestling masks to punk shows and also <laughs> would drive by people making llama noises outside of my car window growing up and one time i did it to a man who was carrying these balloons and he got so startled he let go of his balloons and that was sad um thank you to new listener miggy mack who's come on board jason i love that too who um i think he found us through the psychoanalysis pod Um, he was a listener of the horror virgin who then jumped on to psychoanalysis who um found he's been like going through our back episodes which there are like 70 back episodes now which is 
amazing that we've stuck with it for this long. Um, and also uh, Chris Dudley um, joined the Jason. He was our guest on the um, It Follows episode. He's like, oh, I'll definitely become a patron. And he did. Um, so for our patrons, we hope you're enjoying that It Follows episode. I think it's one of the best things we ever did. Oh, um, yeah. And I hope more people get to hear it. And you can do that by going to patreon.com pod and the pendulum and becoming a supporter today at any level you'll get access to our exclusive episodes now this might make me sound very ignorant but we we recorded a commentary for halloween 4 with nat brimmer like has that been online yet i forgot well we released it as a standard episode (laughs) so that's up there and then i'm gonna just like trim it down um and just put it up there for the patrons as well without like the 10 minute patreon commercial awesome ahead of time um so we are going to be back next week with more of a nightmare on elm street um go ahead if you've liked this episode i want to hear your thoughts on this movie so throw us a tweet over at pod and pendulum also you can join our facebook group over on facebook.com look for the pod and the pendulum we got a nice little group going on over there um by the time, also you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian and Jerry at Jerry is just okay. Also, check out my other show as part of the Consequence of Sound podcast network. Our first two episodes of Psychoanalysis is up, where we discuss horror movies through the mental health lens. Um, spoiler alert next week, you're going to hear me wax rhapsodic on nightmare disorder and lucid dream therapy as part of our Elm Street show. Um, but that's been a really fun project to do with Jen from the Horror Virgin and Lara from uh, the Losers Club. We're really enjoying that. Um, that and uh, I, Let's Scare Jessica to Death is one of my favorite movies oh, of so all good, time. Isn't it? It's so, so good. dude, yes, it, listeners check out that episode for sure i picked that movie to do um as our the first movie we covered as a tribute to my dear friend Lindsay, who loves that movie but it's such a thematically rich wonderful little 70s banger um by the time you hear this i think we're a few days away from our midsummer episode coming out and Ooh. i think we're recording on the invisible man and toxic relationships this weekend so uh, but, you know, that's another show for another day. We hope you've enjoyed our part one of our coverage on A Nightmare on Elm Street, and we'll be back next week with even more. <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Pod and the Pendulum for a little bit of a bonus content here for you. I have a super fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, at least the first few movies as we go through them. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Ada. And who are you? Like, why should anyone listen to you? (laughs) This is my dad. He runs the podcast. Yeah, that's right, with an iron fist. (laughs) So, Ada, what is it? Uh, when was the first time you watched The Nightmare on Elm Street? Like, how old were you? Um, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I was like eight or... Yeah, definitely eight. You were eight? What yeah. kind of awful parent lets you watch that movie when you're that? It's far too young. <laughs> I blame mom. I was gonna say seven. No, I don't think you were seven. I yeah, think I don't think I was seven young. because uh-huh. mom would absolutely murder you if yeah, I had nightmares. Absolutely. I would make her 
just get up too to I would be like, I'm sorry, I'm asleep. You go deal with it. Okay. So what is it about the first Nightmare on Elm Street in particular that you liked? What did you notice about it? I really like it because in horror movies, I'm pretty sure Nightmare on Elm Street is the only one that I've actually seen where the villain can kill you in your sleep. Mm -hmm. Is there any other thing like that? I feel like there has to be. Well, technically, if you're asleep, anyone could kill you. They could just sneak up, right? Well, yeah, but not in your dreams. So that's what you mean, that in your dreams. And yeah. what is it about... Um, getting chased in your dreams that's scary because it's not just like guy with a knife chases you in the woods mm -hmm. Freddy Krueger can like change your dreams and it's really scary and it's mm. not like gory but it's eerie and creepy yeah so it's unsettling. not so it's not that the dreams it's not like getting chased in the woods it's like you could be dreaming that you're being chased in the woods and then right before you get out he could change it to being like chased in the ocean. I also like how it's dream like it's dreams and there's not there's not many rules like it is in like normal movies. Mm -hmm. You can pretty much do whatever. Yeah, you can pretty much do whatever. What about the character of Nancy who fights Freddy Krueger? What did you like about her? I just like her character. Mhm. Mm what about her in particular? I don't really know. How did she fight Nancy? Uh, how did she fight Freddy? Do you remember? She turned around and she screamed at him. She turned around? What kind of stuff did she scream? She yelled, you can't scare me anymore. And did that work? It did, but then Freddy Krueger just kind of pulled mm -hmm. her mom into the void. So, yeah, but at first he went away, right? Yes. So what does that tell you about your fears? You, your fears have control over you if you choose them to have, like, mm -hmm. unless you actually choose to not be afraid of them anymore, they control mm -hmm. you. And if you choose not to be afraid of them, what do you think can happen? You won't be afraid of them anymore. And what will that do for you? They can't hurt you anymore. Excellent. That's a really good answer. How smart you are. You must have a really smart dad. <laughs> um... Because I think your mom, unfortunately, she had a lot of coconuts dropped in her head, and she's not very smart anymore. <laughs> she just sits in a chair and jewels. I'm pretty right. sure mom can hear you in what? the other room. <laughs> Uh-oh. I probably should cut this part out then. Um, who? What do you think about before Freddy, before Nancy turned around and said, you can't um, make me afraid anymore. How did she fight Freddy? What sort of stuff did she put in her house? A crap ton of coffee. A crap ton of coffee. So what was and booby traps? Yeah. So what was that movie? Was that like? Um, it reminded me of Home Alone. It did. Yeah. Because they were these elaborate Home Alone style traps. Uh -huh. But the difference is the kid didn't even need a book to make the Home Alone style traps. Oh, he just knew how to make them, and Nancy had to read a book. Yes. What books are you reading right now? Um, I'm reading, I, I can't speak. I'm reading Screaming at the Rain, and I already read Fish in a Tree, and after I read Screaming at the Rain, I'm reading one for the Murphys after, I'm pretty uh -huh. sure it's the library. Okay. I forget the author's name, but they're all by a certain author. Okay. I think you should read them. I think it's Linda Mulroy Hunt. Okay. Linda Hunt. Um, so... What about Freddy versus, say, Jason? Who is scarier? Definitely Freddy. What makes Freddy scarier? Because Freddy, you can't escape him. He controls your dreams. Mm -hmm. He controls how you act in the um, when you're awake because you're going to be really tired. Mm -hmm. 
but Jason, he's defeatable. You can yeah. ju- you can stab him with a knife and he's dead. Mm-hmm. Well, he's had his head chopped off before and he's still mm-hmm. still living because okay. of the sequels. So Freddy just keeps coming back because what everybody has to sleep, right? Yes, every yeah. you can't not sleep, but you you can't not you cannot stop sleeping, mm-hmm. but you can like turn around and stab the killer that's okay. chasing you. If you had to pick a couple parts of the first Elm Street you really liked, what would you say that they were? I really, really like all the dreams. Mm-hmm. And I also like the part where the mom takes away her coffee and she mm-hmm. go and she takes out another cup that she was hiding. Yes, and that's pours a good the bit. glass. What about the mom? Glass. What was the mom like in that movie? She was an addict. Uh, to what? Drugs. To that drugs. Not like alcohol. Yeah. So what do you think? Did that make it easier or harder to be a good mom? Harder. Yeah. So you feel a little bit. Why do you think that the mom was addicted to alcohol? What do you think it was? Um, what did the mom and all the other families do to Freddy? I mean, she literally just kind of chucked a man into a burning flame and yeah. kept his closet he used mm-hmm. to murder a ton of children. Mm-hmm. And now she's raising her daughter, who is saying that she sees that man in her mm-hmm. dreams when she's never heard of him before. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that would make you want to get some booze. Yeah. What's your favorite booze? Wine. What? You better not be <laughs> drinking wine. You're 10. Um, so was there a particular moment you found really scary in the first Elm Street? The first dream? Not the first dream, but like when you're in the boyfriend's perspective, when the girl's having a dream and she gets dragged up the wall. Yeah, that bit's awesome. You know how they did that? No, how did so they do they it? So they built a room that they could spin around. And they built it so that it, you basically, everything in the room was nailed down. And the curtains, they used this starch, and they sprayed them with starch, and they glued them. And then they could spin the room around, and the camera was also attached. So when the room spun, the camera spun with it. And the girl, who it looks like she's on the ceiling, she's actually on the floor, and everything is upside down. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah, we should do that to maybe niblets little thing and niblets can go upside down also by the way while he's recording things about people being killed in movies there's a fluffy bunny standing right behind him bunicula what's her what's the bunny's name niblets what do you like about niblets she's adorable she Mm -hmm. loves me and um with the other i can actually like buy things for her Mm -hmm. like with the other pets i'll give Lacey a toy and she'll be like is this food? Mm-hmm. I won't eat it if it's not food. And what? like, mm-hmm. and but but with niblets, I can actually give her hidey houses. I can change up her area mm-hmm. because it's not like the cat has his own area. The bunny does, though. Yeah. And what is a fun fact you learned about bunnies when you were studying about them? <laughs> Do you the inappropriate one or the yes, non the inappropriate one? <laughs> I studied bunnies and I found the fact that bunnies, when they when they eat, they don't absorb enough nutrients from it. So to absorb all the nutrients, they eat their own poop. Mm-hmm. I've seen the dog eating niblets poop, and it's yeah, just, the dog nah. eat anything though. The dog thinks everything is food, so she gets upset. Okay, so final question: Would you recommend a Nightmare on Elm Street to anyone? Yes. Who would you recommend it to? Everybody that's not gonna scream. Okay. Or have and nightmares have you, after. What is the 
worst nightmare you ever had? I don't know. I don't really get nightmares. No? Oh, I don't right. remember them. Excellent. Alright. So, this is Mike, and this is... Ada. And we are signing off, and we'll be back next week with our thoughts on A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge.